our hearts in week 31. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. With Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things such as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. You can have a seat. These past couple of weeks, we've jumped into a, a collection of New Testament passages that are all revolving around the idea that this thing called godliness is an intentional pursuit, okay? Now, godliness is not a word we use too much, right? Um, and even if we do, it sounds kind of weird, right? I don't care what you call it. Godliness, holiness, or maybe better put just, just spirituality and spiritual growth, the New Testament makes a case that it is something to be pursued intentionally. And I think this flips on its head the way that we tend to approach it. Because I think for most of us, spirituality is something that just happens to us. We're passive. It's kind of like a collection or series of moments of, of being inspired, of being struck, uh, of being taken hold of by God in a certain way. It's just kind of like, oh, 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 and God kind of testament along as though we're just kind of like bobbing in a wave, right? But for the New Testament, it's a completely different picture. The New Testament is obsessed with the idea that, that God wants a relationship with us. And in that relationship, he wants us to intentionally pursue him. It's like a lover who says, come after me. I want you, and I want you to want me. So come after me, heart and soul. Does that make sense? All right. Now, within this, what we're going to be looking at today is what, at a foundational level, this intentional pursuit of God looks like. And we're going to look at it from one major angle. And Jesus would phrase it something like this. He says this to his disciples. It's the night before he's going to be crucified, and he's sitting there having dinner with them, and he goes, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Now, all, all of a sudden, there's like dirty words popping up here, obedience and command and stuff like this. But he says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Now, the idea here is not something like, 
do what I say or else, or, or do what I say so, so that I'll love you, or, or do what I say and obey what I command so, so you kind of win me over, or, or do what I say so you can have a relationship. Eh, it misses the point. It has nothing to do with it. It's rooted instead in the idea that when you love someone, you want to bring delight to them, right? I mean, when you love someone, you want to breathe into them, right, and do those things and, and live in such a way that, that, that lifts them up and, and makes them shine. And that's what it seems that this is getting after. So what we're going to be talking about today in this pursuit of godliness is what this obedience thing is all about. What does it actually mean to do what God wants us to do? How do we obey what he commands. Now, i got to step back for a sec. It seems kind of no-brainer on the surface, doesn't it? Open up your Bible. It says, do this, do this. It says, don't do that, don't do that. Or if it says, do this, at least say, I want to do it, even if I don't do it. And if it says, don't do that, at least feel bad about it if I did, right? I mean, it seems kind of straight up, but there's actually something very different going on here. Now, a couple of things to kind of get us through this today. Um, First, just disclaimer. There's no way around this, guys. I've tried. Believe me, I've tried. But it is going to be theologically dense today because this question strikes at the heart of, of, of how the entire New Testament and Old Testament kind of dance with each other and how they weave together. There's some deep things. Now, This can get tough to follow, especially in more of a a monologue thing. So we have got a universal sign here at FOF for too hard, too fast. All right? If this starts going too hard, too fast, at any time you can do this universal sign and I will know to back off. All right? Now here's how it works. Take your hands and go like this. Okay? Now put them on your head. Okay? Now wince your eyes... Now, now go like this, all right? At any time through today, if you do that, I will know too hard, too fast, and we'll kind of back off, take a breath, and regroup. Make sense? All right, now, let's jump in with Colossians. Mark was just up here, and he read this, this extended passage from Colossians. And if you didn't catch it, didn't it sort of feel like it, like it was just like an ethics list? Like, like, here's just an extended list of, of, like, do's and don'ts, commands of God, things he wants you to do, things he doesn't want you to do. It seemed pretty straightforward, right? Let's take a little sampling of it, and, and we'll take an example out of this and start to unpack some of the deeper things that I'm trying to get at. Now, Colossians 5 says this, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. It means your sinful nature, that part of you that just rebels and hates God. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God are coming. Just feels like, okay, here's, here's some, some good rules to live by, right? Goes on. Used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now rid yourself of these kinds of things. Things like anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. And, and it goes on. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and image of its creator. It feels pretty cut and dry. You look at something like this, and you kind of go, okay, here's a smattering of ideas. Let's roll with it. And it may be that. It may just be a random collection of examples 
that, that, that Paul just was kind of struck with in the moment. He's penning them down. But take another look, and, and you can start to see a couple of common themes pop up in this passage. Look at this top paragraph. Now, at one level, it just looks like a collection of random examples. However, a case can be made that all of these things here are really nothing more than manifestations of this first word, sexual immorality. It's just different examples or, or ways of describing it or defining it, including the greed thing, which is idolatry. We won't get into that more now, but, but just go with me. Likewise, it seems that there's another common theme, speech, language. Look at how interested it seems to be in, in, in how you treat each other with your mouth. Don't lie, filthy language, slander. And, you know, and in your anger, don't, don't rage against people. Don't, don't, don't do malice, malicious things against people. At one level, it can be just examples. At another level, it might be hitting on a couple of key themes. Now, let's circle back. Obedience, right? It would seem that the way to pursue obedience would be to simply open the Bible and go, this is what God tells me to do, therefore I'll do it, and that's what godliness is all about. Except there's a problem. Open to which part of the Bible? I mean, when you look at that, does that seem to be the sum total of all things that defines sin and righteousness? Right, okay? Now, now we take this for granted, when we talk about the Bible, well, we got like 66 books, right? But did they? When they talked about the Bible, they didn't talk about the New Testament. They didn't have it. When, when they talked about the Bible, you know what they talked about? The Old Testament. And you know what else? Well, Colossians. You know why? Because that was the letter written to them. And it's very curious that in no place in the Bible does God lay out all of his commands in one spot. Question. Did God want first century believers to obey him? Right? Then how come he didn't tell them how? How come he only gave them a taste? More on that in a moment. Now, for the purpose of navigating the depth of what we have to go through, we're going to take a case study. And for our purposes, since we kind of lead off with this sexual immorality thing, let's just take sexuality as a possible case study. And I'm going to give you three examples, and you get to pick one that we're going to use as our case study today. And in the spirit of just kind of like laying it all out there and making everyone fully uncomfortable, let's pick like hot topic, kind of bothersome, oh my gosh, get that out of my face ones, all right? Here's one of the first three, homosexuality, all right? Now, this is one that polarizes. There are some people who are adamant. This is sexually immoral. But there's another large chunk of people who look at it and go, why? It doesn't seem so clear to me. It doesn't seem to be hurting anyone. Why is that sexually immoral? And this seems to be one that polarizes. Let me take a second. Sex outside of marriage. The sin that evangelicals love to rail on and love to practice at the same time, right? You cannot get out of an evangelical youth group without hearing at least 1,500 times you should not have sex outside of marriage, all right? However, outside of Christian circles, it's not even a thought. Why is this a problem? Why is this bad? Isn't this a good, wonderful, pleasing, beautiful thing? Third one is this, divorce and remarriage. Ironically, 
Jesus has more to say on divorce and remarriage than he does on homosexuality or sex outside of marriage. And yet the evangelical world has widely endorsed and embraced divorce and remarriage as a way of life. How come? Those are the three examples. You get to pick one to be our case study today. Now, I got bad news for you. Nine o'clock, pick divorce and remarriage, so it's off the table. You got to pick one of the first two. All right, pick one. Just give me one. I'm not doing both of them, man. We're not going to be here like two o'clock. Give me one. You can't say sex, man. It's all about sex. So second, okay, sex outside of marriage, I think is what I heard back then. Yeah, no, it's boring. I'm with you. It's boring, but whatever. We'll go with it. We're going to use this as a case study that we'll circle back into again and again to unpack some of the problems of really trying to seek out what God is commanding us to do. Now, some people might say, just run to the Bible, do what it says. Here's the problem. Let me show you a verse from Leviticus. It says this. Read it to yourself. Okay, you got it? Seems pretty straight up, doesn't it? I mean, I don't think there's a single one here who would take moral issue with this. In fact, I think most of us would look at this and go, yeah, this is really kind of hitting at some major things about what it means to be a moral person who's godly and does what is good in God's sight, right? Do you know what the next verse is? Here you go. Here's the problem. The Bible doesn't seem to differentiate between the two. It doesn't go, well, you know, these first ones are really important, and these second ones are, well, just, you know, whatever, they're kind of cute, right? In fact, it says the opposite. Keep my decrees. Bam, bam, bam. See what I mean? To just verse pick the Bible gets problematically quick because if you're going to verse pick the Bible and say the Bible is binding, then it means all of it. Because the Bible does not give exception to which commands are important and ceremonial or not. I know some of you are sitting here going, yeah, but in the Old Testament there was like moral law and ceremonial law and civil law. Yeah, in your mind, not in theirs. The Bible doesn't classify that way. Look at how it puts these weird laws next to major laws and weaves them back and forth. Some of you may also be sitting here and going, well, okay, but you know, maybe it kind of comes down to like... Now, look at how it works. And so to just turn to the Bible becomes problematic. Let's take sex outside of marriage, all right? Another problem. Do you know the Bible never actually explicitly forbids it? It doesn't. Prove me wrong, which means like all our high schools are here like, yeah, man, it just, right? But it doesn't. It has to be derived. It's derived from things like in Exodus 18, where it talks about how if a man seduces a woman who isn't pledged to be married to him, he's honor-bound to make restitution and marry her and nurture her as a wife and not leave her hanging. It's derived out of things from like Genesis 2 and how marriage works but it's not actually explicitly there, which means it could lead you to say it ain't there. It has nothing to do with godliness. Do you see the issues that we're facing? And so what we're going to do is we're going to get in to what this thing called godliness is all about and what God is actually calling us to. All right, theology burst. Get ready. Here we go. Now, we got to start here. You as a believer in Jesus Christ are not actually under the law. I mean, you're not. 
You are not under the law. The law referring to those commands given in the Bible of Jesus' day that we would otherwise call the Old Testament or the commands of Moses. So that means any direct appeal to Old Testament commands is ultimately misguided. Which means if my daughter wants to get a tattoo and I don't like it, I can't go run into Leviticus 19 going, well, see, it says in Leviticus 19 that you shouldn't get tattoos because you know what? We're not bound to the law. All right? Now, surprisingly, maybe shockingly, it's not just the little ones. It's not just the weird ones. It's not just like avoid shellfish and, you know, take off your like polyester cotton blend, you sinner. I mean, you know, it's not just that kind of stuff. You're not bound by the big ones either. Galatians 5 says if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And the same holds true for the bigger commands. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. I know there's some of you here right now going, yeah, but you know, it kind of comes down to the Ten Commandments, right? All those other laws, eh. I mean, I get it. But you kind of, you do the Ten Commandments. That's what God wants, right? Really? Think about this. Do you want to play by that rule book? If so, do you work on Saturday? Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Sabbath ain't Sunday, folks. I hate to break it to you. You shall do no work on the Sabbath, period. That's one of the ten. Or how about this one? You got a picture of Jesus in your house, in your Bible? According to the ten, you're not supposed to have graven images. How about an image of God or a hand of God? I mean, you know, rocks through stained glass windows and burn the Sunday school flannel graphs, right? It's just... (laughs) Because if you're bound by the Ten Commandments, you are bound by those, or are you just bound by eight of the ten? Is that how it works? According to the New Testament, if you are led by the Spirit, if you are in Christ, you are not under the law. The commands do not dictate that which is right and that which is wrong. Period. All right, everyone go home. Hallelujah. Fantastic. Let's have a great day. Here's the kicker. Despite that, despite the fact that you're not under the law, here is the kicker. We can still sin. Now, sin and godliness still exist. To say we're not under the law is not to say that somehow right and wrong, good and evil, sin and godliness have ceased to exist. And, And furthermore, just for defining our terms, sin is defined not as breaking the law, Sin is defined as defying that which God intends. The the Old Testament will look at it in two different ways. It will talk about it in terms of what we do and don't do, but it'll also talk about it in terms of who or what we are. And regardless of which of those ways apply, at its fundamental level, sin is just being out of sync with the way of God. It's being out of his heart. It's being out of the way that he likes things done. It's being out and different from his desires and plans, while righteousness is defined as being in sync with the way of God, being in tune with his ways, desires, and heart. Two big metaphors you'll actually see in the Old Testament to describe it. One is called missing the mark. It's the idea of like an archer, you know? You pull the bow back, you aim down that bullseye, you you, you let it fly, and you're off target. 
Okay? In a way, sin is like that. Missing the mark by what you do of what God wants. Another way it describes it is this. Being crooked when God intended it to be straight. Being a warped or distorted version of something that God made plumb and true. And so sin can relate to action, but also condition. Are you with me? Okay, now, the fundamental nature of what God wants is eternal. Commands and laws come and go. And the same is true in the Bible. But God is always God, and the nature of who he is, his character, his desires, the things that he goes, this is just, this is off, these always remain the same. Now, these things are reflected in the, New, in the Old Testament law, but it's not necessarily one and the same, which means you cannot look to an Old Testament law and go, see, that's the heart of God. At the same time, what is said will often reflect or contain an idea that somehow reflects what God desires for eternity. It starts to raise a question. Why the Old Testament law then? Well, I got to give the thing, right? Well, actually, there's a really easy answer to that. To give application and clarity to the people of Israel in 1500 BC. It was to give a codification and examples of what God's heart was like for his people in a certain time, in a certain place back then. Now, that means the specific commands might not apply to us today. However, principles embedded in them certainly may because they reflect, right? Now, let me give you an example, a wonderful way that Paul will put this. Check this out. He says, to those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. Can we say law five more times? Law, law, law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. And guys, I got to say, I'm impressed. At nine o'clock, heads started going like this, all right? No gas gets blown yet or too blown to go like that. Here's what it's saying. All right, track with him. He's saying, I'm a believer in Christ. I've been set free. God's commands have been fulfilled in Jesus. I'm not bound by them. I don't have to follow them. They don't rule me anymore. They don't dictate to me what life is like in Christ. I am not under the law. Just look at the parentheses. However, Paul knows that righteousness and sin still exist. He's got a heart for God. He wants them. And he wants to be in tune. So he goes, I'm not free from God's law. I might be free from the Mosaic law, but I'm not free from God's. I'm still under Christ's way. His desires, his nature. I'm still under this idea of, of what it means to live in harmony and in sync with him. So even though the law might not apply, there are deeper principles of God that May, all right? Doing well. Which brings up a big question. So then how do we know what they are? 
I mean, if, if the fundamental point of this, this little fun journey this morning is all about really trying to unearth what it means to live in harmony with God, to be obedient, to live in sync with his will and his way, how do we know what it is? I mean, you can't go verse pick in the Old Testament because take our sex thing on the, on the table right now. It's not even there. But would you say that that's out of harmony or, or, or off the grid with God's way? No, we wouldn't, right? How do we know? The answer the New Testament gives is actually a lot different than what most Christians expect or think. The way the New Testament answers this question of how do we know is so far afield from the way that most churches operate that, that, that it's almost like kind of what when you first see it? How do we know what sin and righteousness are? Here's the New Testament answer. It's obvious. It's obvious. You know, according to the New Testament, no dumb fool needs to be told what's right and wrong. You know what right and wrong is. All right? Any human who is not self-delusional knows what right and wrong is before being told. This is why the New Testament never has to... This is... Do you notice that in the lists? It never tries to prove why. It never seeks to explain it, why this is so bad. It just takes for granted you know. It takes for granted you know because it's like self-evident in its mind. I mean, look at this. Remember Galatians from earlier? How does it start? The acts of the sinful nature are what? Say the word. Yeah, right? They're obvious. And he goes off and rattles off like a few. Is it the sum total list of all things? No. Why? Because it's obvious. Why don't I got to tell you like 5,000 things if it's obvious, right? Likewise, how do I know what righteousness is? Well, the fruit of the Spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, right? If you're kind of like living in sync with that, do you need commands? Not according to Paul. Against such things there is no law because in the New Testament mind, right and wrong, good and evil, that which is in sync or apart from God is obvious. Look how Jeremiah puts it. A prophet looking forward to the days of Christ, he says, I'm doing a new covenant. That's a Mosaic covenant written in stone. I'm not writing this down anymore, man. You know how hard it is to write in stone? I'm not doing that again. I'm putting my law in their minds and I'm writing it on their hearts. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or brother saying, know the Lord. Let me tell you how to know. Y'all know me. Because God's going to write what right and wrong is on your soul. It is obvious. And incidentally, this is why God can judge all people. Why no one can play the ignorance card. It's why no one goes, well, man, I, I, didn't, I was illiterate. I didn't read Colossians. It doesn't matter, you know? You don't need it. Because it's obvious. At least when it comes to standing before God. It's, it's why some African tribe living in a hut in 1532 who never heard the name of Jesus can be judged by God as well. It's why all of us are morally liable. Because the nature of who God is and what he wants if you're going to believe the New Testament's take is that it's obvious, which kind of gives us a big problem here today, all right? Right? It's the big problem, isn't it? Because what the New Testament calls obvious doesn't always feel obvious. Let's go back to our case study. Here's the classic question. How far can I go, right? You notice the Bible never spells it out. Why? Because it's obvious. <laughs> Just sucks, doesn't it? <laughs> Wouldn't it be easier to have a list? Wouldn't it be easier if God spelled it out? 
okay, on your third date, you can progress. I mean, I mean wouldn't that just be like fantastic? For those of us who are, who are really trying to seek the heart of God and those of us who have been, been, been pressed against things like, like guilt and question and doubt going, I want, but I don't know, and Lord, ah, right? Right, let's go elope and just make it easy. What the New Testament calls obvious doesn't always feel obvious anymore. And that's just reality. And I'll tell you why. The Bible actually has a way of addressing this as well. And it says this is the reason why. It calls it something. Hardness of heart. It just says, you know, it's not obvious to us because our hearts get hard. We, we, we put a callus over them. We, we, we erect barriers to God. We, we shield him out. And then there's all kinds of reasons why we do it. I mean, I, I gave you a few up here. Sometimes we just get so used to it. I had a, um, a friend in college. And, uh, you know, it wasn't the private bathrooms. It was like you had a wing on the dorm, and then there was like the bathroom at, at, at the end of the hall, and everyone shared like the showers, preferably not at the same time, but you know what I mean, right? Recount this, this instance to me where he would brush his teeth in the, in, in the public shower, and that first time it's happened to you, you're brushing your teeth, and you drop your toothbrush. Now, in your own bathroom, that's not a big deal. Oh, maybe I'm revealing my hand. It's not a big deal. But in a public bathroom at a college... Big deal? Is it obvious? <laughs> Told me about the first time it happened, and you're just sitting there going, crap. You, you, you know, and, and forget it. I mean, you hazmat that section of the, the, the thing off. I mean, it's gone. You get the people in the suits, and they, they go burn that thing. You buy a new toothbrush, right? And then he's in the shower the next day, and you know what? I guess the anti-coordination just wasn't there. It happened again. Drops that sucker. Come on, man. I'm a college student. I mean, how much money are you going to line item for toothbrushes here, goes and buys another one. This happens like three or four times. The fifth time it comes around, it happens. You're sitting there and you're just like having this moment and you're going, you know, the water coming out of that shower head is pretty hot. You look around, fortunately no one's watching because that would be creepy at a whole other level in a college dorm, right? Rinses it off, no one knows, five second rule, keeps brushing his teeth. You know, you go throw up after a moment like that the first time. But after the fifth or sixth or seventh time of doing it, it doesn't really feel so odd anymore. You know what I mean. We all have our own things that we're guilty of doing this in, aren't we? Because sometimes we just get used to it, and the way of God isn't so obvious anymore. Here's another. Sometimes we just want it so bad. I love her so much. It's got to be okay, right? That will rationalize it. Now, really having sex, I mean, not by the clinical definition in medical journals, right? You know the game. We've all played it. Those of you who are 12, you'll play it soon. (laughs) Sometimes we want it so bad, we'll just rationalize it. And sometimes we just don't want to hear it. You ever had sin just come get confronted in your face, and it's just like, you know, I mean, you know it's right. You know you're guilty, but it's like you don't want to hear it. It's like, get out of my f- You get angry. You get, you get resistant. You get mm, combative. Because sometimes we just don't want to hear it, right? And, and sometimes we just don't care. Sometimes it's like, you know, God's kind of good at a distance, man. Just, we're, we're cool. You just hang there. I'm not going to play my own game. And sometimes the world we live in just has a different picture of it. And let's face it, we're shaped so much more by our world than we are by the things of God. I don't care what the reason is. 
The Bible has a word for it. It's called hardness of heart or being stiff-necked or being calloused or having a conscience that's seared. One great passage in the New Testament, we'll talk about it, is a layer of fat that grows over your heart to insulate. Just gross. It's, so many, it's like the toothbrush thing. But you get used to it. That layer of fat's feeling pretty good on there right now. I, and so that which is obvious to God doesn't become obvious to us anymore. And guys, this is why we need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we need him working through a trifecta. It's a trifecta of the scriptures, our conscience, and the prophetic voice of believers in this thing that the New Testament calls the church. Because you know what? We can take scripture by itself and we can distort it. We can twist it. We can misinterpret it. We can do things with it that it's not meant to do, right? Likewise, we can take a look at our conscience and we can ignore it. We can avoid it. We can desensitize it. We can rationalize it away. And guys, let's face it. Sometimes the prophetic voice of the church just ain't too prophetic. Would you agree? Believers, can I get an amen on that one? That's why we need God's spirit working through all three. It's a check and balance to correct. And it's why we need to be immersed in it. And it's what the pursuit of godliness is is all about. Because if you're just here looking to follow a list of rules, you're never going to capture it. Because the Bible will not give you that list of rules in all of its ways, in all of its examples, in every situation that you may want to see. The only way you'll know is by radically and intentionally pursuing the heart of God. Because it's when we pursue him that we come into interaction with the Spirit. And it's when we're in interaction with the Spirit that that which is obvious to God becomes obvious to us again. I wish there was an easier way around it, but there ain't. It's what the New Testament cry has to say. And this is why it is so adamant. Pursue God, all your heart. Go after him. Immerse yourself in him. Be baptized into him. Plunge your life into his way so that what is good and what is evil, what is obvious, becomes obvious again. And that is the heart of spirituality. Guys, uh, I want to invite you to rise. I am so glad to see that no fuses were blown. Yeah, right, huh? (laughs) We're going to carve a little time again. And uh, I just... You know, things aren't obvious to me. They're not obvious to you. What's cool is we can come here and we can admit that. And we can admit it to God. So just carve a little space again with him to pursue him, to invite him back in, to ask for his help, hunger after him again, all right? Let's pray. Lord, who you are and what you're about been made so clear, God, in, our, in your creation, who we are as people and our own souls. God, we're so dumb. We're so stupid. We're blind. And you know, worse than that, Lord, we, we just tune you out and our ears grow dull and our lives grow comfortable and our hearts get calloused. Lord, it's not obvious to us anymore. God, forgive us. You know, if we've put up a a wall or a barrier, we've insulated our hearts with fat, if we're calloused. 
I break through it, break, th- break through the walls we've set up, melt the fat, remove the callus. God, tune our hearts to you again. Tune it to you and to your will. God, give us a hunger to pursue you. We, we trip a lot. We get tired of running. We get bored. We lose sight of what it's about. Help. Help. We need you. Send your spirit upon us, God, and don't hold back. Be gentle. But don't hold back because what you offer is greater by far than what we have. Lead us in a passionate pursuit of you in the same way that you've passionately pursued us. God, may we take that step here today. Lord, we pray. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.